Cultivating Place is made possible in part by generous support from the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. As we continue our multi-part series on the many facets of the global 30 by 30 conservation efforts, as they continue across the state of California, being just one example of local, state, and national efforts aggregated, this week we're in conversation with June Bando, the new executive director of the California Native Plant Society, and we're back in conversation with Leave O'Keefe, the senior director of public affairs for CNPS. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. I would love to have each of you introduce yourself the way you like to introduce yourself, a little more personally, and I'd love to have you include sort of the role that plants play or represent in your life as an important relationship for you. Uh, let's go ahead and start with you, June. Thanks, Jennifer. For me, Plants are a source of beauty and wonder, and they also provide a sense of place. I was born and raised in the South San Francisco Bay Area. Um, after graduate school, I went to D.C. and spent several years on the East Coast and abroad before returning to California in 2020. I was away for long enough and in so many places around the world that after a time, I found that nowhere, not even the town where I grew up, felt like home anymore. The exception was when I'd come back to vis visit my parents and would go running on trails in the Diablo Range. And when I'd smell California sagebrush and bay and other local plants, then and only then did I really feel that I'd returned home. So for me, plants provide a sense of place and beauty and grounding. And now in this role, I also think about my relationship to plants in the context of stewardship. This job centers for me, plants, people, and all the ways that we connect to native plants in our lives. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I uh, will dig into a, a lot more of all of that. But first, let's go over to leave and I'll ask you the same thing. In introduce yourself to listeners the way you like to introduce yourself a little more personally and how plants play a significant relationship in your life. I would describe myself as a lifelong nature lover. Um, I have always been drawn to plants in particular. Um, I view them as companions. Um, I, I, whether it's in my garden or on a hike um, or even in my own house, um, I'm, I love to be surrounded by plants. Um, I love to touch them, smell them, see them, um, work with them. That relationship is, is really important to me. And I think that that's deepening over time as I learn more from a lot of different people in our communities about what plants mean to us, how much they're integrated into every aspect of our lives. Obviously, we depend on them for life itself. Um, and so for me, it's about that, that connection uh, and that relationship. I see us as being all part of, part of the same in, in this natural world. Yeah, yeah. 
So let's keep with you, Leave. Give people a little bit of your background and um, perhaps, you know, highlights of your earliest influences and then kind of the history of your tenure at CNPS, which has covered a lot of really interesting years recently. Well, sure. I, I'd say my earliest influences um, were growing up in the Los Angeles area, in the coastal areas of Redondo Beach. And that was a lot of, you know, cliffside plants, coastal plants, really, you know, rich gardens in that area. But I think some of the things that made the earliest impressions on me was actually going back to Kansas to visit my Swedish relatives whose parents had come to the United States as farmers, and they too were farmers. And there was something very magical to me about my grandpa's farm. And I think that was pretty deep in me from an early age. And I definitely, you know, I love, um, I've always loved the subtitle of your show, this impulse to garden, because it, it does feel like an impulse. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was something that I was very drawn to from an early age. And as I got older, and wherever I could, I found myself planting plants, starting gardens, you know, as a renter, and, you know, later as I owned my own home and had a garden that I could control completely. I just, you know, went head on to it. And I think for me, a real turning point was having children and really wanting to be able to introduce them to the natural world around them. You know, going up into the Sierra where we live and going on hikes, children are just so naturally curious and want to know what's around them. And it was it was a real joy to be able to share that. And I wanted to know more about what was around me so that I could share that with them. And that's really when I first came in contact with the California Native Plant Society, long before I worked for the organization mm -hmm. as a member and, and came out of that curiosity um, for what was around me and wanting to share that with my children. Yeah. So... Your current role with CNPS is Senior Director and uh, a Public Affairs. Maybe give us a, a quick synopsis of what, what that means besides pretty much everything. <laughs> the way I really think about that role, this role, and, and my team's work is it's about connecting people and plants for the Native Plant Society and helping us unearth and and see just how connected we are so that takes all kinds of forms as we know gardening education advocacy there's just so many ways that we do connect with plants art ethnobotany and so um, helping people discover their own relationships with native plants um, highlighting the relationships we have and really understanding the interdependence and why um, that interdependence makes it so critical that that we steward native plants. So yeah, that's how I think about our team's work. I I call it that. I I always write it as the people times plant connection. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And June, let's come come back over to you. You know, you you gave us a little bit of a hint, a really super fast forwarded version of your your experience. Um, and that growing up and that sense of home and place and, and how that emotionally and physiologically resonated for you every time you returned to California. Give us a, a little bit of history of 
your career and your educational work, because you've been an ecologist for a very long time um, in a lot of really interesting roles that I think are all going to come into play for you as executive director at this very um, important and um, being nationally watched and recognized native plant conservation organization. Yeah, thank you. I was born in Mountain View, California, and when I was three, my parents bought a house in Milpitas on the southern edge of San Francisco Bay. Um, my parents aren't native English speakers, and when they were looking at their prospective home, they asked the realtor about this large installation on the other side of their backyard fence. And the realtor explained to them that it was a rehabilitation center. So my parents bought the house under the distinct impression that they would be living next door to what they thought was some kind of physical therapy center. And not long after that, they discovered they had actually bought property next to a jail. Mm. And the reason why I'm telling this story is that a benefit of growing up next to the Elmwood Correctional Facility, which was surrounded by undeveloped land, was that we saw a fair amount of wildlife in our backyard and neighborhood. Um, my dad is a chef by profession, but he really has the soul of a naturalist. Mm. And from a very young age, he encouraged my sisters and I to pay attention to the plants, pollinators and other wild visitors to our backyard. Um, and so my dad really was a big influence um, in this regard. And my dad is, is brilliant and very curious about the world, but he's someone who didn't have access to higher education. Mm. And so he, I think, and my mom were both really influential in encouraging my sisters and I to follow paths that later led to careers that touched on research and higher education. Um, I think generational and community influences also shaped my path. My, my parents were born in Japan during World War II, and they grew up in areas that had been carpet bombed during the war. Mm. Um, I grew up in a community with a large population of immigrants, and many of the kids that I went to school with had survived wars and violence in Central America and Southeast Asia. So I grew up interacting regularly with people who had been exposed to significant trauma. There's something about the healing property of nature that has always spoken to me. And I think this was in large part what drove me to major in environmental studies with a focus in restoration at San Jose State. And that was a key and early stepping stone in my winding path to CNPS. After getting my doctoral degree, in ecology, I did some research in conservation genetics and taught courses in environmental studies at San Jose State and the University of San Francisco. And although I loved teaching and research, um, I was actually surprised by how much I loved uh, both. I yeah. also um, increasingly felt the call of policy work. Yeah. And um, I can talk a little bit about the seed of that interest, um, if if that would be. I would be, love that. Yeah, I yeah. would love that because I think it really informs um, the work you do and how mm -hmm. you are going to be approaching the work you are doing with CNPS. And I think that is of critical importance. 
So I can remember the moment that that, that seed of interest in policy work landed in my brain. Uh, when I was an undergraduate student, I heard a talk by the late Dr. Luna Leopold, who was a geomorphologist uh, at UC Berkeley and the son of famed naturalist Aldo Leopold. Um, Luna Leopold gave a really compelling talk at a conservation conference about the expanding role of science in society. And his message was that we'll always need good science, but more than ever, we need people who can distill and translate science for policymakers so that the best available science informs policy. And that message really was the seed that led me to pursue a science and technology policy fellowship through the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And I approached it as a career experiment, but it turned out to be the beginning of a career pivot from research and higher education to science policy and diplomacy. After that, I spent um, about a decade and a half working on global affairs. And time and time again, I saw that the solution to global issues often lay in coordinated and whole of society actions at multiple scales, from the local to the national to global. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm back in California, it's very clear to me that our implementation of 30 by 30 provides a prime example of how these kinds of local and community actions can have national and, and global impact. So working in global affairs was fascinating and compelling, but I always felt the pull of California and work in the conservation space. Um, in 2020, like many other people, I did a lot of soul searching and I made an intentional career pivot and came back to California to work in the science policy realm. Um, at that time, as senior advisor to the California Council on Science and Technology. And then a couple of years later, I saw a search announcement for my dream job, and that's this role at CNPS. The last thing I'd like to say here, Jennifer, is that my time abroad really strengthened my belief in California's exceptionalism. Um, the, this idea that our leadership in environmental protection and our deep values of diversity and equity really allow us to achieve progress at a scale here in California that in many other places can only be imagined. As we continue our multi-part series on 30 by 30 conservation efforts, this week we're speaking with June Bando, Executive Director of the California Native Plant Society, and Leave O'Keefe, Senior Director of Public Affairs for the Society. CNPS is an important agency in a larger coalition of agencies and groups contributing to California's planning, assessment, and projects to meet the goals of 30 by 30 in this one large biodiverse state. Stay with us, we'll be back for more. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. 
Hey, it's Jennifer. Last week, we learned more about the 30 by 30 and the California Pathways to 30 by 30 plan. But did you know most states have their own 30 by 30 Pathways plan ready and available to download for you to know more and perhaps participate more wherever you are? My younger sister sent me a copy of Colorado's Pathways to 30 by 30 report. So send me a link to your state's Pathways to 30 by 30, and I will share it forward with others in the next week's episode notes. Happy exploring. There's always more to learn, and there's always even a little more we can do and grow. I'm Jennifer Jewell, this is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with June Bando, Executive Director of the California Native Plant Society, and Leave O'Keefe, Senior Director of Public Affairs for the Society, discussing the role of the Society in California's larger network, contributing to California's pathways for meeting the 30 by 30 conservation vision. As we come back, Leave is sharing more about the CNPS Conservation Conference held in October of 2022 entitled Rooting Together, Restoring Connections to Plants, Place, and People, wherein conservation writ large included 30 by 30 as one entire learning track across the 1,200-person four-day conference. Well, work on the conference began nearly three years ago and um, has been very much influenced by um, the work our organization is actively doing to incorporate and live the values of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. I really think that the conference theme and everything that came out of it was born from the realization that for too long um, in the environmental community, we've tended to treat people as the problem, that people as perpetrators against nature. And while you know there's some truth to that of the harm that we have caused, we are also part of nature. And to care for this natural world is to care for ourselves. And we really wanted to uphold that, that role of humans as part of the natural world and stewards of the natural world. And so, you know, the theme that our former colleague, David Bryant, helped bring to life was um, this rooting together, restoring those connections um, between people, plants, and place was really what we wanted the spirit of this event to be about. Yeah, yeah. And maybe um, remind listeners of the mission of CNPS and a little bit of its its reach across the state for those that might not be familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, at a very um, fundamental level, the mission of our organization is to celebrate and protect California's native plants and natural habitats for both today and for future generations. We're an organization that has 35 chapters across California, one in Baja, Mexico. And it, we are very much a both a grassroots and statewide organization at the same time. And our, our strength is in that, in that we have chapters all around the state that are deeply involved in 
in native plant conservation, habitat restoration, community building and education um, and garden at the local level. And then we also have a line of sight across the state about how all these issues are coming together. So, and, and how we need to advocate for or work with our communities and leaders to improve and protect and celebrate native plants. And so something that I think about a lot is that the native plant world creates, is really a beautiful container for all kinds of people to exercise this love for the natural world and this connection to it. And we're very much an organization that, you know, while we're a science-based organization and, and a lot of our advocacy is driven by best available science, we're also an organization of artists and nature lovers and educators and gardeners who who share this these common values of of connection to our natural habitats and and wanting to preserve that for future generations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe I'll stick with you just for one more question. Um, walk us through the the different learning kind of threads or or I forget exactly what you call them. Maybe you called them pillars uh, or pathways um, at the conference, because I think this speaks to some of the clarification and transformation that CNPS has stepped up to in in these last three, four years. Yeah, thanks for that question, Jennifer. And absolutely, yeah, that's a perfect segue because the different tracks that we were offering at the conference were meant to reflect those different components of of who we are as a society and how we approach our work. And so we had tracks focused on plant science and conservation, stewardship and gardening, and education in in a very broad sense of of the word. And that was, you know, to, to honor the different kinds of people that are contributing to this movement. And alongside that, you know, there was a heavy focus on the arts where we had, you know, poetry, reading, art exhibits, um, even tattoo contests. We had music, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in honor of all those, you know, the, the very personal ways that a lot of us connect with plants as well. Yeah. And I, you know, as as an attendee of, I think, three conservation conferences now, and having had a very um, poignant conversation with you and uh, previous uh, staff members at CMPS in that, you know, very um, wrought, let's say, moment of 2020 and 20 early 2021, and this real focus on the importance of integrity and inclusion and true diversity being represented in these environmental groups that we rely on to to help preserve these places and plants and and lives that we rely on um, in so many ways. I was so proud to be at this conservation conference leave in June and to feel like CNPS had truly met this moment in a deep and meaningful way in terms of welcoming, including, and listening really listening to a diversity of voices from you know all backgrounds all 
uh, ethnicities, all socioeconomic levels, and all parts of the state. And I think one of the things we would all recognize, um, certainly um, in this conversation, the three of us, is that we will not be successful if we do not mirror the diversity of need and hopes of all of these groups of people, as well as these habitats of, of plants in place. That's so well said, Jennifer, and um, and absolutely the truth. And it takes all of us. And there's been a lot of people who haven't felt included, had a seat at the table in decision-making, been a part of what we'll call, you know, the modern environmental movement um, for a long time. So yes, we're we're doing some really hard work to try to make space for a lot of different voices at this point, and um, and it was incredibly meaningful to us to have people who historically haven't been part of this community leading sessions, being keynote speakers, and really inspiring so many people at the event. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and just, you know, there was a whole day on um, BIPOC voices in one of the, the threads, and there was a whole um, day of Native American and Indigenous voices uh, in one thread of the day. And, you know, as well as some of the hard sciences, as they're called, so-called hard sciences, and that complement um you know, and, and then there was the horticultural and, and home gardening voices uh, of all kinds. It felt very holistic to me. And, you know, I, I will say that um, there was at least one day at the end of one day of the conference where I came upon you in tears. And it was this, I think, sort of surfeit of of emotion at what you had as a group achieved finally um, not to say that there's not more to achieve, but it was a, a moving tribute to be at this conference. Yeah, um, we have so much work to do, and I get reminded of that daily. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, a lot of this work, we talked about this before on your podcast, is um, uncomfortable. We're going to be challenged constantly, and it's a lot of stumbling forward. And I experienced that even at the conference, like, ooh, you know, maybe I didn't do that in the right way, or, oh, we should have done this differently. Yeah. But also seeing, though, what can happen when we really do earnestly make the effort, right. even if it's imperfect, is very encouraging is, is sort of an understatement. But it's, yeah, it, um, it, it really meant a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. 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 I think all 1200 people had a very shared experience in this way. And so now I'm going to come back over to you, June. You know, I, I think your sharing of your childhood experience and of your um, parents' early experience here in California, and then your educational and professional trajectory landing you in this conservation conference in October of 2022. Uh, as a fabulously accomplished woman of, you know, Pacific Island background, 
What was the experience like for you to interview for CMPS, to to take on this mantle of leadership um, in these very challenging, God bless, challenging times? For me, it's this has been an experience, and I'll echo themes from, from the conference here, but the process of applying for the job at CNPS and joining the team. I mean, this really has been an experience of, of learning and connection and inspiration for me. Um, and to maybe go back to a thread of your question just now about my background, you know, as, as an Asian American woman, I, you know, previous to coming to CNPS, the only organization I had ever worked during my career, the only professional community I had ever been a part of where I didn't feel that race and gender were issues was the diplomatic corps. And in every other environment, um, and I valued all of these work experiences, yeah. but in every other environment, I've always been conscious of being othered. And I think... Um, it's a reflection both of the time that we're in, the moment that we're in, but also very much of the work, the intentionality um, with which CNPS has approached this work in diversity, equity, and inclusion and justice, that landing in this organization um, has felt to me, I really feel like I've, I've come to a place where I belong. And I say that, you know, personally and professionally. And as Leave said, we have so much work to do as an organization um, to make progress, you know, toward diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, and to continue to be a part of the progress that our conservation community is trying to make toward these big goals. Um, we have a lot of work to do but I'm really encouraged by where we are. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And I, you know, those two threads of a lot of work to do um, will be accomplished more effectively and um, graciously together. And that intertwining I think is so critical for us all to see and for us all to take part in um, from, from my seat as a home gardener. So that kind of takes me to the future, um, to the future of the work as you see it, June, and the the hopes you have for recommitting, re-engaging, or newly engaging in different areas, especially in the context of one of the um, I, I don't I'm not sure what the right word is, one of the organizations that is striving to make 30 by 30 uh, a real a real goal and and an achievable goal in in our state at this time. I'll start with our DEIJ work, our diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice work. Mm -hmm. This is a huge area of focus for us. And we understand that this work isn't it's not a project, it's not an initiative or something that we tack on to our regular work. It is a part of our work fundamentally. Um, it captures the values that we bring to our work and hope to integrate into everything that we do as an organization. So 
I would say that looking forward, um, we're looking at our work through the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And this links to our work to on 30 by 30. And I think your, um, your, your listeners are familiar with the focus of 30 by 30, but a reminder that this is the international effort to conserve 30% of our lands and waters by 2030. Um, this is an especially important initiative. It embodies so much of who we are as Californians and what we're working toward at CNPS. Um, and that includes the durable conservation of biodiversity, equitable access to nature's benefits, um, partnership with tribes and communities, um, all of these things that we've been talking about in this com com conversation, excuse mm -hmm. me. And so 30 by 30 provides us with a bold and necessary unifying framework for these durable conservation efforts across the state. Coming out of COP27, the UN Climate Conference, and as we approach COP15, um, the Biodiver UN Biodiversity Conference in Montreal, it's, it's clear to the inter international community, I think clearer than ever before, uh, that biodiversity protection has an enormously important role to play in climate resilience. And so all, I feel like we're at a moment of, of really important convergence in these, these efforts, which again, scale up from the local, the hyper-local, I would say, up to the global. And in 30 by 30 and on the climate action front, like so many environmental efforts, California is a vanguard. This is Cultivating Place. As we continue our multi-part series on 30 by 30 conservation efforts, this week we're in conversation with June Bando, Executive Director of the California Native Plant Society, and Leave O'Keefe, Senior Director of Public Affairs for the Society. The California Native Plant Society is just one agency in a larger coalition of groups and people and agencies contributing to California's planning assessment and the projects that will meet the goals of 30 by 30 in just this one large biodiverse state. Stay with us. We'll be back for more. Hey, so there are two great takeaway ideas from this conversation with June and Leave that I'm turning over in my brain and thinking about from my own garden level view. The first one is a point made by June earlier in the conversation about how biodiversity loss and climate catastrophe go hand in hand. But her point is that the inverse is also true. The more biodiversity we protect and support, the greater the resilience to climate disruption. It might seem sort of intuitive, right? But it's also in my mind so worth remembering and holding onto as we garden for biodiversity and the beauty of that. The other point I'm holding on to is the importance as shared by Leave that came to her from Rose Hammock, who we will be speaking to in the coming weeks, about this sharing on and forwarding of knowledge that's been shared openly with us. 
This, this sharing forward of what has been given to us freely, it seems to me the very best kind of insurance and educational policy. And just think how much knowledge every plant you've ever known has shared openly with you. I'm Jennifer Jewell, this is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with June Bando, Executive Director of the California Native Plant Society, and Lee O'Keefe, Senior Director of Public Affairs there. As we come back, Lee is sharing more about Power in Nature, the broad coalition of contributors to 30 by 30's success in California. California Native Plant Society, one of the things that we like to call ourselves is the voice for plants. You know, we are we are a unique organization in that we represent plants. Um, and we have wonderful partners in the conservation community that represent landscape scale conservation, that represent wildlife, um, the, the critters of the world. Our role is, is a unique one in representing plants. And so first and foremost, we come to these coalition partnerships to bring what we know about um, our native plant habitat and species to the mix as reasons to make sure we are conserving the lands that we're working toward. But we're also here through that lens of, of community and that people connection too, and wanting to make sure that we're helping to um, support messaging campaigns and operations that really involve people at the grassroots level and are are getting at what communities are seeing as needs and helping to um, support and uplift those. And so in 30 by 30, we're involved in a few different ways. I lead the 30 by 30 communications subcommittee and, and campaigning subcommittee. So we're very focused on a lot of the messaging that's going out there, how we're talking to people, how we are connecting the dots for people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the biggest issues is that right now, there's a lot of action going on across the state of California yeah. that contributes to 30 by 30, but sometimes people may not know that that's the case. Um, so you might have a project at the local level um, it might be, you know, a, a public land that you're trying to help restore. It might be a place that you think needs to be purchased for conservation. And 30 by 30 is an important connecting point for people in that way, because by taking that, that project or local goal and connecting it to the statewide and even international goal, Local advocates may be able to get funding to help support the effort. Um, They can surface it to state leaders who are looking to identify those kinds of projects. Mm -hmm. Um, And and together, we can all start to be moving toward the goal, which is in California, to protect 6 million acres. Um, so that's a big goal, but that it's literally, that's how we get there. And so CMPS is in there is just one of the, the helpers connecting those dots and really trying to help surface those priorities. Yeah, yeah. As you look at the, you know, last week we, we heard from Jennifer Norris and um, from her agency's perspective and her role, um, 
that, you know, we're, we're getting kind of close in terms of the fact that we start at 24% um, of our lands durably protected, um, something closer to 16%, I think, for, for coastal or waterways. What do you see from the CNPS work uh, side, and this is a question for either one of you, what do you see as the voice for plants is your greatest kind of contribution to how how lands or projects are being evaluated? How do you bring, you know, the, the CNPS metric uh, as a contributing overlay for anything being evaluated in this work, whether it's, you know, where seed is being grown for a big restoration project or how a particular plot of land might be evaluated as being an important one to include for protections in 30 by 30. I'll offer up a couple of thoughts and then um, turn it over to June. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind for me is, is that we are preparing to unveil our important plant areas. So for five years, CMPS has undertaken work at, you know, region by region across the state, holding workshops with experts, pulling together different data sets to try to um, fully map where are California's important plant areas. And I believe that that will be a tool that we can layer with this 30 by 30 work to really help um, focus on those most important areas. Um, so that, that's just one practical, um, very specific piece that we hope to yeah. be contributing to the community over the next year. Right. Um, the next piece is, is around land management and stewardship. Um, because one of the things that, especially through the Power and Nature Coalition, we're, we're trying to help surface is that we have a lot of degraded lands. And especially in urban areas or areas where people um, have been marginalized and haven't had as much access to nature. And in restoring those, better managing those, we can help meet our biodiversity and conservation goals as well. Um, and CMPS can help share and establish a lot of best practices around those lands, um, both, both in the wild, but also in in these urban areas that can really help us get there. So Leave answered that beautifully. And I think I'd offer one additional thought, which has yeah. to do with the work that we've been doing to promote um, the use of native plants and gardening across California and really trying to help accelerate this paradigm shift so that we're encouraging people to think about gardens um, not, you know, primarily or only in terms of aesthetics, but really thinking about habitat value and conservation as they are um, designing and planting their gardens. Um, and so we have a multi-year campaign underway that's really intended to help educate the public, um, help facilitate access, to native plants and working in partnership with the horticulture industry um, and with other partners. Um, and Leave may have additional thoughts on that piece as well. 
Yeah, those together are beautiful. Uh, and anybody who's out there listening who may or may not be a member of CMPS, uh, if you take a look at some of the back issues this last year from Flora or Artemisia, the two large publications of CMPS, you will find a lot of information on this vegetation mapping um, project that's been going on that are just, they are phenomenally interesting. Um, and then uh, the, you know, the the home gardening it is also crucial. And as Jennifer Norris noted last week, while every single person's backyard may not add to, you know, acreage for the 30 by 30 um, metric, they still add to the the weaving together of these 30 by 30 spaces um, into being much more functional and um, ecologically contributing. So that is just win, win, win. That's right. That connectivity is a, a really important point that I'm glad you're touching on, Jennifer, because um, that is that is the role, and it's such an empowering role that each of us can play. Um, is you know by planting natives in our home gardens, getting them planted in our public spaces around them, at schools, libraries, um, commercial developments, we can create that tapestry of um, of of wildlife connectivity that that gives these species that might be in peril a fighting chance. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the statistics are that something like a little bit over 40% of California is held in private hands. So, you know, some of that might be larger parcels, but a lot of it is these tiny little parcels we all live and garden on. And that together as a cohort is phenomenally powerful. That's right. And to me, that's, that's the good news in what can otherwise be a lot of you know, bad news that, you know, incites existential crisis. Right, right, right. Actually, okay, let's just calm down and let's plant some native plants right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which will help us calm down, by the way. Um, (laughs) That is so true. And so, um, you know, I would like to end with, you know, maybe a little something from both of you about your greatest hopes for this work. Um, you know, not necessarily in like meeting the 30% by 30-30, but the maybe more existential and philosophical hopes you have for for what this work can do to redirect and um, regenerate our culture and, and our places. And I'll go with that, whichever one of you is ready or has something that comes up. Well, I'll I'll share something I heard at the conference that really inspired me um, that I think is something that I'm thinking about in a lot of different ways right now as, as we go forward. And I'm also thinking about it at, at my age. I'm, I'm in my early 50s now and really starting to think about paying it forward and nurturing others. And um, I heard this from Rose Hammock. Um, she's she's an indigenous teacher and a consultant with Redbud Resource Group. And she was talking about some of the tension sometimes that indigenous people feel in being asked to share their knowledge. But what she said was that wherever we come from, our knowledge is power and we can't be greedy with that knowledge. It's to share. And that is something that I think I'm holding as both a, a, a personal aspiration, but also one for our organization. Yeah, beautiful. 
I like that. June? Thanks, Jennifer. I would say that my great hope is that this work contributes to healing our planet and to healing us. And we spoke a lot today about um, this conference, which was such a special moment. And I'm really hoping that we and others are able to use this conference as a launching pad um, as we work together uh, toward these goals we've been talking about in this conversation, um, you know, so that we keep earning the trust and building the relationships that we need to carry on this work together. Beautiful. Is there anything either of you would like to add uh, about about a specific or a, a general aspect of the work of CMPS or how it fits in with 30 by 30 or just conservation um, in, in general before we, we leave? One, for anybody that's new to Native Garden, it's, it's prime planting season right now. So if you're feeling inspired to um, start, don't be afraid to start small and now is a great time to get plants in the ground. Um, you know, right as winter rains are coming is a beautiful time to help get them established. So just sharing that, that quick piece, um, I would encourage people to um, learn more at cmps.org or at the powerinnature.org website um, to get involved in some of the things we've been talking about. And then one of the last things I'll share is something that um, I heard a number of indigenous people tell us at the conference. And that is, if you are somebody that maybe has a good amount of property or has a lot of native plants that you're growing, um, invite your local tribe to, to your land to gather. Um, that that is something that is very much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. I love that contribution, yes. June, anything? <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. I think I would be remiss um, in, in not reminding folks that CNPS is a membership organization and we need people, we need you, um, the listeners, um, to join us. There is a place for everyone to do something really tangible and meaningful about the twin crises of climate change and extinction that are going on right now. And there's so much that we can do together um, to care for this beautiful state. And so I would encourage folks to get involved, um, whether as members or through some of the other ways that Leave has just mentioned. Um, I mentioned earlier some of our community science projects, um, and listeners can learn about those. We have projects like Fire Followers or Oak Watch, um, or those of partner organizations uh, like the California Academy of Sciences City Nature Challenge. Um, you don't have to be a, a you know, formally trained scientist to support good science. Um, and so we'd really love to encourage people to to become involved in these kinds of community science projects. Beautiful. Thank you both very much for being guests on the program today and for the work you are doing. It's been an honor to speak with you both. Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate your partnership. Thank you so much for having us, Jennifer. 
June Bando is the executive director of the California Native Plant Society. Leave O'Keefe is the senior director of public affairs for the society. CNPS is just one of many contributors working towards the thoughtful, strategic progress and ultimate success of 30 by 30 efforts in the large and biodiverse state of California. For my full conversation with June Bando and Lee O'Keefe, and much more information on the 30 by 30 initiatives through the work of CNPS, their 2022 conservation conference, and the Power in Nature Coalition, as well as this week's Speaking of Plants, in which we sing the praises of the sycamore, make sure to check out this week's Cultivating Place podcast at cultivatingplace.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of plants and place, biodiversity and habitat protection, this week, let's sing the praises of the sycamore. Now, full transparency, I was all set to talk about a shrubby flowering plant genus, the Ribes, this week. But so many people commented on the habitat value and specifically the beauty this time of year of our native sycamores that I decided to regale the Ribes next week. The sycamores have the spotlight this week and indeed this winter season across North America and throughout the natural and cultivation ranges of sycamore. Who among us that recognizes the mottled, spectral white and gray of the sycamore's smooth bark does not marvel at their almost glowing and often towering trunks in the spare winter days. Naturally occurring in wet areas like last week's alders, but with some of their relatives used as beloved street trees in cities around the world for hundreds of years now. Sycamores are formally of the genus Platanus, the only genus in the Platanaceae or plane tree family, and there are somewhere around eight species plus hybrids, including Platanus orientalis, the oriental plane tree, Platanus occidentalis, also known as the American sycamore, Platanus ridei, which many call the Arizona sycamore, native to the southwest and northern Mexico, and which may be a hybrid of Platanus racemosa, the sycamore native to my region. Also known as aliso and as the western or California sycamore, Platanus racemosa grows throughout most of California and down into Baja, California, occurring naturally in canyons, floodplains, and along streams in several types of habitat. But this one is also used as a landscape tree across the West and Pacific Northwest. This large tree commonly grows to 75 feet tall and 50 feet wide, but it can grow over 100 feet tall with specimens of trunk diameters from 3 feet to 10 feet. Some species of sycamore form a single leader, and some, like Platanus racemosa, are often divided into two or more large trunks splitting off into branches. 
But it is these stately trunks and their remarkable bark that catches the attention and holds the imagination. The color is often described as brown when trees are young and even at the bases of mature trees. But as they grow older, areas of the upper trunk and branches are this amazing mottled color of darker bark peeling away to reveal large areas of luminous white young bark and kind of middle-aged pale gray to even pinkish bark. The large lobed leaves are deciduous and can be up to 10 inches in span. The leaves age from pale, bright green in spring to a very warm, yellow, orangish brown in the fall. The inconspicuous flowers once pollinated become these really interesting kind of bumpy pom-pom-like globes of many individual seeds held in a seed capsule known as anakin. The western sycamores are tough plants, withstanding heat and wind and drought, and they are fairly easy to grow with access to water. They need water, especially as they are getting established. Platanus hybrid acerifolia, known as the London plane tree, is a hybrid dating back to the 1600s between the Oriental and the American sycamore, and can be found as a street tree from London to Chicago to Denver to Los Angeles. It is chosen as a street tree because of this striking trunk and its resilience to urban pollution, which is a resilience born in part of this peeling bark that sloughs off annual air pollution. Some people do find sycamores a little messy with this peeling bark and dropping fibrous seed balls, and they do have a tendency to defoliate with summer wet or rain or humidity because they are susceptible to a fungal disease you might be familiar with, anthracnose. But under the right conditions, sycamores can live up to two or 300 years, with the oldest specimens being closer to 600 years old. And with that kind of age range, these trees have supported humans and wildlife for thousands of years. Again, according to CalScape, Sycamores are great small animal like squirrel, bird, butterfly, and caterpillar trees. Platanus racemosa, the western sycamore, has at least eight butterfly larval associations. Okay, so here's a funny tree friend life-supporting habitat story for you. While many of us have important trees in our childhoods, trees we remember still with great love, Many of us can also share tree friends we've made or found in adulthood. It was when I was pregnant with my second daughter, my then husband and I were living in Bristol, England, where he was attending a fellowship program. We lived in a flat down a longish winding hill from the hospital where we would deliver our girl with the help of the midwives there. It was a warm, latish summer night after midnight when we knew it was time to make our way to the ward. We'd been in labor for several hours and the contractions were coming pretty quickly. And for anyone who has ever been in labor or stood next to someone who is in labor, you will understand when I say that the contractions were also coming on pretty loudly. 
When we had moved into our flat, we'd been happy to think we could just walk to the hospital when it was time. And so it went. It was a densely arranged residential street, mostly made up of old, kind of beaten up brownstones that had been divided into many small apartments like ours. It was a particularly livable street due to the large old trees that lined it. Their large-leaved canopies took the edge off of the heat, off of the noise of traffic, off of dust, and off of the many people. These trees offered limbs and cavities for birds to rest, to forage, to nest, and I had always admired these trees, their gracious, sheltering limbs as I made my pregnant way that summer, often hectically shepherding my eldest, who was just under 18 months at the time. But that night of my second daughter's birth, as we made our slow and halting way up that long, dark hill, I admired these trees with much greater intimacy and in much greater detail. Street lamplight pooled between the massive, evenly spaced tree forms, and every other tree or so supported me as I leaned into its steadiness, the cloud-like gray and white surface strong and smooth and cool to the touch of my hands and my forehead. They were silent, but calm and calming as I groaned and moaned and counted. These trees, each in turn, literally breathed me through clenched teeth contractions the whole half a mile to the hospital ward. These trees were our first loving midwives and doulas that night. When we moved to our first neighborhood in California six years later, I like to think my daughters and I all recognized the California sycamores lining our new street as both familiar friends and faraway relations of those London plane trees that July night in England. I will always be grateful for the beauty of that luminous patterned bark seen very close up. Join us again next week when we continue our multi-part series devoted to the global 30 by 30 initiatives at various levels and conserving biodiversity and natural habitats in general, this time looking at a specific project in its growing phases. We'll be speaking with Yurok tribal member Brooke Thompson and Forest Service botanist Joshua Chenoweth, who are collaborating on the Yurok tribe's revegetation plan for their sacred Klamath River in its soon-to-be-undammed life. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation, empowering women and helping preserve the planet through environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. 
cultivating places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.